0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living social history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world.
1: Hey, if you've listened to this podcast before, welcome back. And if this is your very first time listening, then thanks for finding us. My name is David Aiken. I'm the Checkerboard Guy, and I'm your host for this growing collection of interviews and stories produced by the Busker Hall of Fame. In this episode, we dive into the very first interview Magic Brian recorded for the Beehoff Project back in January 2013 with veteran street performer Jeff Moshi. Jeff's name may not be familiar to the current generation of fully amplified performers, but in the acoustic years before amps, mics, and iPods, Jeff's show was a staple in the summer months at the pitch near the Chateau Frontenac in Quebec City. He also toured extensively in Europe and Japan, as well as playing at South Street Seaport in New York City during other times of the year. Though you could categorize Jeff as a magician and escape artist because he is a maker of miracles, it's really his sense of humor that's been the mainstay of his career. At a couple of points during the interview, Jeff references Woody Allen's comedic style and approach, and there are certainly parallels that could be drawn to the somewhat neurotic disposition of the character that Jeff developed over the years, but his delivery is uniquely his own. More than just a performer in this world, however, I really love that Jeff has always viewed the street as a completely legitimate venue, one you earn your place in as you hone your skills and art in the pursuit of excellence. This is certainly the way that Jeff chose to dedicate himself to his craft and his life, A life filled with so many great stories from the pitch.
2: All right, we're here with Jeff Moshi in Park Slope, Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for coming to my apartment, Magic Brian. You're welcome. It's beautiful out here. Now just to go back, in case there are people listening who don't know who Jeff Moshi is. How is that possible? I don't know. Well, you've been out of the scene for a little while. The street scene.
0: Well, before you get into that, I want to say that... I'm right now wearing Robert Nelson's Boston Hall of Fame shirt, which I I was going to wear another t-shirt, and then I'm like, oh, I should really wear Robert's shirt. And I always uh, considered myself sort of out of the mainstream, even at the time when I was street performing, I was kind of off to the side somewhere. I've done very few festivals, and even though I think I became pretty good at street performing... I don't think of myself as really like in the pantheon of street performers. And uh, even my friendship with Robert, I could count on fingers and toes the number of hours I spent with him, or even the number of hours that we'd talk on the phone or something. But I always felt somehow surprisingly close to him for the short amount of time that we did spend together. So... Being interviewed for this, or being on his list of people to send a shirt to, there's something very nice about it, and yet something that feels like, well, I'm surprised I'm in that list of people that's being interviewed. Well,
2: I think we always see ourselves differently than like other people see us. So
0: you, could, I guess, yeah, for sure. I think it's like how many Jewish street performers do you have on record? <laughs> we need to get it. one of those. It comes down to the Jew thing, you know. Every time I would speak to Robert on the phone, you know, that was like one of the things that we'd go, "Oh, it's the Jew," or you know, something <laughs> Jew this, Jew that.
2: So let's go back then to um, how you started with magic in general, and then from there we can talk about how you decided to start street performing.
0: Well, this you, is you grew up
2: in. Brooklyn?
0: Uh, no, I grew up in Manhattan. When I man. was I was like a kind of a Woody Allen kid growing up in Manhattan. You know, the typical, like, uh, you know, I would get mugged <laughs> by, you know. I went to a religious Jewish school when I was very young. And my parents were born in Iraq, in Baghdad. Long story, very interesting story, but moved Eventually to New York, they met here because Iraqi Jews would hang out together and socialize. So I was uh, born, raised in Manhattan, Upper West Side. And uh, so when I went to college, I was really more in academics and was planning to be a psychotherapist. From like 82 to 80 or 83 to 85 or so, something like that, I worked in a very prestigious mental hospital in New York. Before that, I worked in a couple of psychiatric studies and hospitals and stuff like that and a depression clinic in Philadelphia that's run by a very well-respected guy. And uh, that was my intention. But just after I finished college, I was still in Philadelphia because like, everything I knew was more like psychology and stuff it was all cerebral and i re-engaged uh to pick up magic as a physical thing to do because i wanted that feeling of having an actual skill that i could do because all the knowledge about psychology was like well you know how fast can a rat run in a maze yeah
2: and you never picked up magic prior to that
0: I had done it a little bit as a teenager, but I was never good at it. You had like a
2: magic set?
0: Yeah, I spent about two or three years, but I never was really big into it. But I had influences, my brother did a little, my uncle, you know. But the simplest tricks, they did a couple of things... And it just, I always liked that feeling of being fooled in magic. Everybody has that, I think, and I liked it a bit more. I don't think, even though I was not a self-assured person, a lot of magicians apparently get into it as a self-esteem thing, and mm. I don't think it was so much that for me. It's curiosity. It just, I love the feeling of being fooled, and a magic trick was just such a cool thing to me. Yeah. So, after college, I uh, started getting intrigued by street performing, and so when I was in Philadelphia, I went and hung out downtown, and people were still buzzing about these two magic guys that had been street performing the year before. So, there was a show in Philadelphia? Yeah, uh, the downtown, basically like South Street Seaport, New Market, it was called, Hmm. and there were a couple of street performers there. So, the couple of guys that they were talking about that had left and were so great were Penn and Teller.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was like. What was it the Asparagus Show or something?
0: Asparagus Valley. Yeah. Cultural Society. Right. So, at the time when I started, my feeling always was that street performing was about as good as it could get in terms of the quality of people that were out there. And so I had really a reverence for it. And early on, I remember literally crying one time because I felt I wasn't good enough to be on the street. Wow. This is
2: once you already started.
0: It was early on, but it was a feeling of there was a thing to live up to. It wasn't like street performing was the low end of the totem pole. There was something quite high about it for me. Had you seen it prior to being in Philadelphia? Did you see it when you were in New York? Was there anyone? Very little, and yet there were, like, Charlie Barnett was already a legend, and there were legendary people. So you saw them in Washington Square Park? No, I was a very late bloomer to waking up culturally in New York, and I never even went to the village until I was probably 16 or so and maybe saw a little bit of street performing before I left New York, but, but you really, don't that doesn't
2: really no. resonate. you can't really remember no. what you saw. So it wasn't until you were after college in Philadelphia when you heard about Teller. or you went to go see the guys down there in Teller. I only heard
0: about Penn and Teller. Yeah. Rich Cowley was uh one of the first I wouldn't call him a mentor, but he was a guy who actually did rings in a straitjacket, and he had a kind of hippie George Carlin character. And uh, he was the guy I saw a lot at that time, who was a magician who I just thought, oh, this is great, and saw him 10, 20, 30 times uh, doing street shows. In Philadelphia. So that was probably my earliest inspiration of a single person who I was like, oh, wow, that. That is great, and I could imagine wanting to do that. So then, moved back to New York. It was about three or four years after college and doing the mental hospital things. I was hanging around on Columbus Avenue in New York, which had become one of the street scenes to do. Where? Uh, Columbus Avenue in the mid-upper 70s to low 80s was a very active circuit for small street shows. Just like on the sidewalks? Yeah. There was wow. uh, that one... Imagine, it, imagine. It's funny that... that, that avenue. Ju- that was a big deal. Like uh, Cellini used to work there when he'd come in town. Chris Capehart. Uh, this guy, Bill McQueen. Uh, Bill McQueen was really the first person who I felt was a mentor to me. And Carl Mellish Polaris used to work there. It was a very active scene. That was a very big one, and in front of the Metropolitan Museum was big at the time. And South Street Seaport just got built like at the end of the 80s, or mid-late 80s. Around the middle 80s, when I was hanging around on Columbus Avenue and had a couple (coughs) of friends there... ...is when I started seriously thinking, wow, I maybe would want to do this... ...but I was still focused on becoming a psychologist. And I just started being less and less interested in that... ...and hanging out with my friends... ...and realized that I would never become good unless I really devoted to it. And at the time, even the couple of years before... I've always battled stage fright. It took me a long time to get rid of the nervousness uh backstage or whatever. I don't get it much anymore, but really not even that long ago that I got, you know, better at that. And so at that time, I mean, I would come out a lot to Columbus Avenue with a deck of cards and stuff and hang out with Bill McQueen and I just could not get the courage to... Did you have a little table or anything? I did put together a case and I really had no kind of skills you know, it was all close-up magic everything I knew was cards and coins and I had no real sense of showmanship but something about it I wanted badly enough that I kept going out with my stuff and trying to get through that stage fright, but I couldn't do it. And I, I don't know how many times I went out the first summer and maybe did one show. Yeah. all summer. And you uh, got
2: yourself to go out there, though. Yeah, That's I mean the half of it. Hmm.
0: Oh, I'd say that is amongst the list of most courageous things I've ever done. Was that mm-hmm. you know? And and I tried to tell people that part of it is you have to have either that desire or the lack of aversion to it so that you can get out and do it but some combination of that I had enough desire to overcome the fear Mm -hmm. also uh, early on I remember I was hanging out with Carl Mellish and this was probably mid-80s around uh, Lincoln Square and there was one big plaza area there and I was telling him how I didn't know how to build a big crowd at all and get people to stop. And he was like, oh, here, try this. And he lights a torch and puts it in my hand. And the <laughs> Next thing I knew, I had, like, a lot of fucking people around me. I was like... Uh, now uh, do I do. Yeah, I have no idea. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, pick a card, any card. I mean, I had nothing, and I really barely even talk through a card trick <laughs> so it was such a funny thing and i then realized the power of fire which i had never used really subsequently but it was amazing to me yeah how simple that was
2: so your first summer what year is this your first summer going on columbus avenue
0: that was probably 86 86 just going out with a deck of cards 86.
2: every day 85 maybe and yeah, you then- never performed prior to that in any form
0: very little. I did once a kid's show when I was 13, and I literally, I could not speak. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like... It wasn't supposed was to be a silent act. completely unintentional mime show. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, you probably had this thing where there are certain magic tricks that are so fucking basic, easy to do, that you think, how could I mess this up? <laughs> of course I am going to do this. Calling book. The coloring book, the mouth coil. Yeah. So the mouth coil was my undoing because <laughs> I do this kid show when I'm 13 years old and I can't speak anyway, so I might as well have paper coming out. Of that. <laughs> so I put the mouth coil in, and then as I'm pulling it out, it keeps breaking. <laughs> and so I felt like such a fucking idiot that I can't That's even. And, and so I'm having like you know, this is like that Woody Allen thing. I'm saying I'm pulling out the mouth coil which keeps breaking and then I'm having this internal self-esteem dialogue about how I suck because I can't even do this mouth coil and that was about the only, yeah I did one street show I think after that and then I finally decided I didn't like psychology as much, I got to the point where I either had to get a PhD another five years of school or become a street performer and wow. I basically just said I don't like psychology enough anymore and this was another like crazy courageous thing for me that I did coming from the type of background of everybody's uh, doctor, lawyer, businessman in my family and I decided to quit my job, move down to New Orleans with no idea of what I was going to do or whatever. Had you
2: had a, at that point, did you feel like you had a show that you could bring to New Orleans or you just said, screw it, I'm just going to go down there and figure it out?
0: I just said, screw it. I had no show.
2: And you really, deck your cards on <laughs> a table. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, a couple of coins. And bad self esteem. and uh, You left not, the mouth closed behind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of miles of mouth coils between me and New York. I remember I moved down to New Orleans into the YMCA. And my first sentence was like, what the hell am I doing, you know? Yeah. And I somehow made it work. How long did you live down there? (laughs) Six months. And it took me about three months, four months or so to say, well, screw the card tricks or whatever. And that's when I first started doing the straitjacket and the linking rings.
2: And that was because you saw the guy in Philadelphia doing it?
0: I think so. Basically... Who was it you saw in Philadelphia? This guy, Rich Cowley, who I think is a computer programmer now in California. Yeah. And it was also somebody else because I uh, this guy I was talking to about needing to do something more of a big finish kind of trick on the street. And he's like, well, why don't you do the straight jacket? And it was that combination of Rich Cowley and that guy mentioning that. And it's so it's stuck in the back of my head as the easier choice to do yeah. at the time unfortunately if I had it all to go back now I would do something else because I didn't realize at the time how everybody and his brother was on a unicycle doing a straight or, or whatever that at the time it hadn't proliferated that much mm-hmm. but I should have seen the writing on the wall but all my comedy and you know I do like a 15 minute straight jacket routine so trying to undo that at this point is um, you know I wish I had had the courage and the foresight to change direction because I think one of the harder things for me why I've never worked festivals almost at all is because whenever I'd send my promo tape they probably looked at it and in part go oh here's another guy doing a straight jacket escape. sure
2: I mean it's a hard thing to get past that yeah that's why I wear a wig and tight pants now.
0: <laughs> That's not what I've heard as to why why you do that. That's why I rarely come over to your house unless there's chaperones present. Yeah,
2: it's better. It's safer that way. So you started in the straight jacket in New Orleans, but that was after you had been there for a few months, and then you only stayed there for a few months after.
0: Yeah, but you know, this was amazing. The first time I did the straight jacket with almost no routine at all, and I made more money doing it, and I just knew there was something about it that felt like good to do, and ever since then, I just basically did it, and my routine has changed immensely since then, but it was always like the sort of uh, anchor, Mm -hmm. and uh, I really still had aspirations to do more magic, but the show became more and more comedy-oriented, Even right now, I mean, I consider myself more a prop comic who does magic than anything else. That's how I explain to somebody what I do. I would dabble around with more magic-type stuff on the street, but I always really got more and more into comedy, and there's definitely a very kind of melancholy, self-unassured kind of thing about my personality and yet at the same time I have a class clown type right actually the first time I ever like sort of consciously told a joke in front of a kind of audience was in my fourth grade public school class and the toughest kid in school had fallen asleep and everybody all of a sudden I think the teacher mentioned oh look Alex fell asleep And I just went, oh, like that, like, oh, isn't that sweet? And everybody laughed. And it was like the first time I literally remember telling a joke and getting a laugh and putting that mechanism together in my head. So, by the way, uh, uh, when I was in New Orleans, uh, Johnny Fox came through. And he was the most polished act that I ever saw at the time. And I was like really blown away by how good he could blend really good magic and stage presence and street performing. And uh, that was the first time I met Gazzo, who came into town. And how did they treat you? So here's the guys that have been working, and here's this new guy
2: with a straight jacket and blinking rings.
0: Gazzo was relatively new, but he and Johnny got along better than I got along with either of them subsequently you know here and there we've all been friends but anyway and uh yeah i mean i met really interesting people in new orleans it was a great time really like a cauldron of you know you come out of that experience with something you know you transform so you
2: found it was pretty supportive
0: it's a very supportive for performers it helps get you oriented it helped me and at that time I think it was a very bohemian kind of thing you know you'd see performers come through this guy Chris the Piss have you ever heard of yeah I worked with him in London I met him at that time very briefly this guy Sebastiano who was like an amazing balloon clown he was working on Columbus Avenue at the time before I moved down to New Orleans and he was another person who was probably like the most polished really good street performer who did balloons but I mean people would crowd around him to watch him make a balloon for somebody because his whole way he had that Commedia dell'arte kind of incredible presence and movement and just finesse about how he would do balloons and people just loved watching him. That was very impressive. Tim Eric did an amazing follow uh, mime act at the time. And so, you know, certain things I remember as being kind of influences to me at the time. For me, street performing was such a high art form. I really searched for those people that made you feel like, wow, I saw somebody really incredible on the street. And so there was that sense of there are some really, really great people that uh, were working on the street. And I think at the time, one of the discussions I would have with friends is how over the years, generationally, street performing has become less and less creative and more about people figuring out the best ways to make
2: money. Yeah, Matt Ricardo was talking about that in the interview that Mike did with him a very similar thing is when he first worked Covent Garden everyone was just trying whatever and shows that there was a particular performer, I forget it was a woman, and he's like, you could ask anybody they wouldn't be able to describe what she did in her show but she did a show, and that was the kind of shows whereas now, it's like, how can I make the most money, how can I be as loud as possible and as high as possible how can I get the biggest crowd as possible
0: Yeah, I felt privileged to grow up at that time of seeing that, you know, where now it really seems to be the 10-foot unicycle or more with fire and loud music and... three chainsaws and... You know, I lived through the change of that trend. I remember when I started, nobody used amplification. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like, you know, well, the difference between a payphone and Skype now, you know, it's like... But even when I used amplification, I always felt like I wanted the mouse amp that was just loud enough to work my circle. Mm-hmm. I resented the fact that uh, there was this proliferation of people with louder and louder systems and so it became a competition and um, besides the fact that now, you know, for all the amount that I've done it, I could barely imagine walking past a street performer and really wanting to watch it because it's just going to feel like immediately like, oh, I've seen this a gazillion times. Mm-hmm. Here and there. There was that one guy, uh, I think he won Shizuoka years ago, the Japanese guy who would go into poses of famous art pieces and he'd put a frame in front of them or something. Or You know, that was like, what a cool act. And yeah. it was amazing that he ended up going to Washington Square Park and doing well. And it was great to see that, you know, like, people would love watching an act like that because there's tumblers and jugglers and all the typical stuff right near it. And, and yet, this guy also would do really well. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, I moved back to New York. I started trying to work in front of the Met and that's where I met Elon who was a, a terrific performer and the thing is, because he would do mime, and he was one of these people who's just very gifted of a, a mover in a sense of uh, comedy and image and stuff, so he worked really well in front of the met what i didn't realize at the time was that i'm struggling against trying to work this space where a vocal act without amplification is just yeah you know your cars on 5th avenue driving by and, yeah there's no acoustics whatsoever so i always felt like it was just like he was so great and i was struggling all the time and it was partly my developing an act and working on how to be funny, and he just already had that, but that ability to basically speak through visuals, mm-hmm. and uh that was perfect in front of the met, and he had the gags that worked there and stuff. I never saw him be as good as he was there, even when he went to South Street Seaport or on stage for me. The gags that Elon did in front of the Metropolitan Museum were just unbelievable. So I asked him about where to maybe go in the summer, and he suggested to me Montreal. So that was. So, not to
2: stay in New York?
0: No. I didn't want to stay in New York. I don't like hot weather in the summer, and I felt like getting out, and he suggested Montreal. So that was my first summer. I spent the six months in New Orleans. Around April, I left New Orleans through Houston for a festival, came back to New York for a couple of months, and then after talking with Elon, decided to go up to Montreal, where I spent the first summer there with uh, Scotty and Joan. Henry Camus was there. That was maybe his first summer street performing and a couple of other people. Bertie McLean, came through there later on. So that was a
2: big hub then?
0: Yeah, it was a a well-known pitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scotty and Joan had already been working it for a few years, and they were near their end of working there. And I had a very, you know, basically a very good summer there. That was also the first year of Halifax, which... I could have gone to, and I thought to myself, well, why go to this place that nobody's going to go? It's in the corner somewhere, and I didn't go. And all these performers coming back from Halifax through Montreal at the end of the summer, and you'd say, well, how was Halifax? And they all went, that was the best (laughs) festival I ever did. (laughs) And they all had lost their voice from doing so many shows and had made so much money, and I had... Could have gone, but convinced myself not to go. Yeah. But at the end of the summer in Montreal, a friend of mine, Leslie Dent, a magician, he told me, let's go to Quebec City. Because he thought that was a great place. And I went there and immediately fell in love and thought, this place, for me, more than Montreal, is where I want to be. Mm -hmm. And so from that end of the summer, I spent eight summers in Quebec City out of, I think, 11. I think three years spread out in Europe and eight summers in Quebec City, and that was some of the best time of my life. Wow. A great crowd. Now, I'll say it because it's no good anymore. So you're all too late if if you're thinking to listen to me and go there. Because basically... There's a limited number of spaces and over the years performers that live in Quebec grew there and basically decided well they're going to work the streets there and stay there and they don't travel so even though it's been overworked they have nowhere to go but at the time that I was there I caught it at a good period of time.
2: How many other people were there with you?
0: It would vary for the most part it rarely ever got to be more than four big shows on the pitch, usually two or three. So I was assured of almost two or maybe three shows every night mm-hmm. in this great pitch. Who were yeah. the other performers? Well, um, it changed. There was a guy, Gert Kettle, who was a one-man band. There was a guy who I lived with, Ed Stander, who played musical wine glasses. Mm-hmm.
2: furry things
0: furry eggs and uh, a couple of other people this guy who became one of my really best friends Eric Dumont who was doing a tall unicycle act eventually and juggling knives and stuff Uh, but he eventually quit and became uh, like an insurance adjuster but he's still a very good friend and uh, this guy Popoff who uh, would do like a clown juggling act, and he started a circus school up there. So that actually ended up putting out a lot of performers on the street. There was a triple acrobatic act called Acrobazia, which I think later eventually worked some for Cirque du Soleil or something. Oh, there was a really... Good balloon show. This woman, Balunda, she did a skit with balloons and little kids, and she would get like three, four, five-year-old kids to do a wedding ceremony, and it was adorable. And the funny thing is, that was actually one of the first ideas I ever had was to do adult weddings in downtown Manhattan, and I still think that's a great premise for a show. Mm-hmm. And I have the whole thing in mind, but Balunda did it with little kids, and her audience management of these little kids was great to see. She was really, really good at it. So, you know, there was a speckle of performers, but at the big pitch, there was like, uh, usually, on average, probably three performers that would work there on the night. And the thing is, Quebec City, Quebecers are a really good audience, especially in Quebec City, in Montreal, I think they're too tainted with being city people. Mm-hmm. Quebec is a small town, village thing, and there's a big tourist thing of Canadians and Americans that would go through Quebec City. So there was a constant turnover. I could work literally every day and night, seven days a week in Quebec City, and there was little downtime. Yeah. So there were times where you were wishing it would rain to just, just to get stop. a break. Yeah, you know because I couldn't you know essentially if there was like a decent weather I couldn't not go yeah of course and uh, you know by the time the summer ended up I was exhausted and then most of the time for many years I would come back to New York and then work South Street Seaport on the weekends through the rest of the year I never went to Australia I didn't want to deal with the flights and all that stuff And I was always more a night performer. I didn't want to work in the daytime, in the heat.
2: So you'd be back in New York in September?
0: September through June, and I'd be working weekends at the seaport. Even in the winter? A warm day in February, I'd go Sure, yeah. And even into the uh, mid-late December, and they started having the Christmas tree thing.
2: So when you started working in the seaport, because now... It's, there's an audition process, and it has been for, I don't know, the last maybe 10 years at least. Was it just an open pitch that someone just discovered, or...?
0: Uh, no, it wasn't. I remember going down to South Street Seaport before it ever was built, and it was just, you know, the fish market and all this stuff. Yeah, there wasn't the
2: big mall but, or restaurants or Yeah, anything. they
0: built the... Rouse Company came in or whatever and built the whole thing down there. There was an audition, and I got rejected at first. But six months later, somehow I got called to go in and come back.
2: And when you were working on there, who were some of the acts when you first started? Elon,
0: Will Shaw, Ned Gelfars, Mark Mitten was doing balloons. This guy Terry Gross, I think, he uh, was also doing balloons as a more hero style clown very good stylized mime clown but all the performers there were really top notch you know and over the years after that it got to be where it was really hit and miss with the performers down yeah. there and that was because everyone of... left you know Will and Ned stuck <clears throat> it out for a long time Elon had moved away to Europe or he was doing cruise ships and then some casinos and then moved to Europe and uh You know, but gradually, besides the fact that they lost their cachet in general, the Seaport did, and lost the better crowds, you know, for other reasons, I think just attrition that the better performers were leaving there and they didn't get replaced. When we first started working at the Seaport, it was a very impressive lineup of quality. So there was that feeling at the time, too, that people who were street performing might go on to bigger, better things. Yeah. Charlie Barnett, who was working uh, Washington, Washington, Washington Square, gotten a big deal to do uh, Vegas and movies and ended up burning out with his cocaine addiction and stuff. So again, at that time of me street performing, there was still that feeling of there was a greatness to it. The seaport, also, I found out was a real emotional roller coaster because you could do one show and the next show have half as good a show for half the money. Yeah. And it was all over the place where other places seemed more consistent. Yeah,
2: the seaport's mental. It's,
0: it's so weird. Completely... As I got better, I used to see some very good street performers go there with a pretty big ego and walk with their hat in their hand. Because, you know, there was something about the seaport that really frazzled people. And uh, there were a lot of good performers that didn't do well there. Yeah. A few years after that, sometime around mid-2000s or so, I just started feeling like I really had to do whatever I could to break my ties and get out of there. Yeah. And I finally did manage to...
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure you saw it change a lot in... Probably very, very, very different than when you were first working down there. Yeah. But it was a handful of
0: really strong acts. It was a handful of strong acts and a great pitch to work. You know, it was very good early on, but slowly uh, changed over the years. You know, it was just the easiest place for me to go work. I never wanted to deal they want to with all, all the permit stuff in New York. I think I did one show ever in Washington Square Park just to do it.
2: And you didn't go up to Central Park at all? Work Very little.
0: I did a couple of those, you know, because the thing is, by the time I moved down to the seaport, too, it was either walk five minutes to the seaport and do a scheduled spot, and knowing nobody was going to bother me, Yeah, you know, it was reasonably consistent, but definitely, like, always an up-and-down thing.
2: So it was a good community amongst performers then? Like, did you guys hang out the pitch together, or help each other out, hang out afterwards?
0: Uh, I was mostly friends with the guys at the seaport. I don't know if, uh, you know, it just worked out that way geographically or whatever. Sure. But uh, I've always felt a closer kinship with those people, even just as friends and as people, than I did the other guys.
2: So then those guys at the seaport that you share the pitch with, would you get there early,
0: you know, hang out? We'd go out more after, you know, we'd maybe meet before and hang out in between shows a little bit and then go out afterwards to dinner I remember that was a really great thing was that feeling of relaxing Sunday night after working that's Mm -hmm. a great thing of street performing is that time and you're making your entire living off of
2: street performing at this point
0: I would do some private parties Mm -hmm. Uh, so street performing all summer with a couple of gigs here and there that might Mm -hmm. come through and then A definite mixture of private parties and street performing the rest of the time. My life was so much about singles, you know, like counting (laughs) counting single dollar bills and change. Uh, This is a funny story. I did uh, the first summer I street performed in Europe. I did the first year of the water festival in Stockholm. You know, I had had an okay summer, not a very good summer, that was one of the highlight weeks that I did well. So I ended up with this huge bag of fucking coins, you know, weighed a ton. And I call this friend of mine up and I'm like, how can I get rid of these? And she suggested me to go to her bank somewhere in Midtown in Stockholm to change it. So I go to this bank, but they won't accept the money for whatever reason. And I'm just, you know, like crying, walking around the streets <laughs> of Stockholm with this huge, heavy Five bag top. of coin. And I feel like I'm, yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, this weight of the world <laughs> that I'm carrying around of Stockholm. And, you know, I can't find any place that'll take it and cash it. You know. Bars
2: this is the best place.
0: Oh, well, thanks for telling me now.
2: Yeah, sorry. You should have asked me back then. I wouldn't have known. So just going back a little bit, can you remember your very first show where you felt like that was your, not like when you had a deck of cards and you were trying to you know, work on Columbus Avenue, but your first show where you felt like you had done a show?
0: Probably like in uh, Jackson Square. I think the first time I did a show with the straitjacket was on Royal Street, and I was like, Wow, I actually made more money, and you know, even without a routine. But then later on, the shows at Jackson Square started feeling more like shows where I had a crowd and built a circle and did that. So by the time I went to Montreal that summer, I felt like I could do a show. And in fact, uh, the first show I did in Montreal. I think in some ways I made a better impression on other performers than I almost felt that I was or you know somehow there was a feeling of like wow you know he's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I had issues with my own just general confidence and self esteem in general but I had some definite natural talents as a comedian even though I think there was huge amounts of improvement that I made since then and Montreal was the first summer where I started feeling like I hit a stride of being pretty good. And then in Quebec City over the subsequent years, there were times where I really started getting the feel of a character which changed over the time. But uh, one summer, almost the entire summer, I wore this crazy hair wig And I remember Bertie particularly, he loved that wig. And And it stayed
2: on when you escaped from the straitjacket?
0: I think when I did the uh, arm move around my head over the straitjacket, the wig would come off. (laughs) But it was like wearing a costume and a mask, and it gave me a character. And then one summer soon afterwards, I had had a girlfriend in Quebec City... And we split up. And it really hit me very hard. uh, So it got incorporated into my character because I couldn't quite be the self I was before that depression. So I somehow blended that into a comedy show persona where it wasn't that I was depressed, but I would like never smile or... You right. know, it was something involved. The clown character that I developed became, like, part of the depression thing. So, you know, that's been interesting how the character morphed over the time.
2: Yeah, it well, it's, like, major things in your life, you end up incorporating bits of that into your character to flesh it out more.
0: Mm. You know, uh, one time when I was street performing in Belgium and i was doing a bit where i would tell the guy to hold the straitjacket by the collar with the arms facing me and i would tell him and say i'm going to run across and jump into the straitjacket and i literally would do that you know but it was a like a nothing run and jump into the straitjacket and you know it was just a, a bit and not a particularly good one but i had an injury where i fell and twisted my ankle So I couldn't do that anymore. So I verbally would tell the guy, I'm going to run and jump into the straitjacket and I'd have him hold it out. And then somehow I'd, I'd say, oh, well, you know, or I wouldn't do it. And, you know, so it was the injury caused me to change the whole way I did the bit. Yeah. And actually now I do it much more like how I did after the injury. I never went back to doing it where I physically literally jumped into the straitjacket.
2: Yeah, it's funny how necessity can dictate creativity yeah. in some ways.
0: Actually, uh, also one time from working in Quebec City because it's fairly French oriented, but you could speak English there, and I ended up developing a show which was really bad magic, bad French, bad English and all mixed together and that was the you know, the comedy of it. But I basically did my English-speaking show in French, and I could translate the jokes or do different jokes, but basically do the routines. When I went to Japan, there was just too many reasons why I couldn't do a lot of the material that I did before, so I ended up writing sort of jokes that only worked for Japan. Hmm. I went... Five different times to Japan, and one of the times I determined that I wanted to learn it all in Japanese and learn two new tricks. You know, that's I would say maybe three or four times in my life I've ever worked as hard as that. I can imagine was, to learn Japanese, yeah, yeah. I it was like I had come up with two new routines, yeah. I, I don't even know what got through my head to do that so one of the routines that i had done many times in english french or whatever and i managed to basically keep in japan and struggle through with partial japanese that was clearly their favorite routine though
2: you know but what made you go to japan where did that come from
0: uh for like festivals or whatever there was mm-hmm. a time where Magic was just popular in Japan and through agent or recommendation. Do you know Dave Rave?
2: Yeah, I've heard of Dave Rave.
0: So, the first summer I was in Europe and met Dirty Fred, Dave Rave was there also. Liked what I did and recommended me for this gig in Japan, which ended up being a very difficult gig when I went there. It was... When I first started doing the gig, it just ended up being terrible, and it was like a a two-and-a-half-week thing in Osaka at Tempizan Festival. So I go back to my hotel, and I'm literally in tears, because I know Dave was there, and he had recommended me, and I just went Yeah. I went back to the hotel, I turned the TV on, and I'm like in the midst of tears, I'm watching this show in Japan where they're like putting pies in their faces and falling into dunk (laughs) tanks Uh and they're all laughing hysterically the audience is laughing and I think okay they laugh, they're not laughing at me but they are capable of laughing and there's a way to figure this out and I completely went into troubleshooting mode I didn't take it personally as best as possible and I just started going okay, I'm not going to do this routine. And this routine, which I did here now, is number two. I'm going to do it number three or four. So within three, four, five days of doing that gig, the management came up to me and they said, we cannot believe that you are the same guy that was from the first day. And it was the proudest I think I've ever had of that feeling of going from Zero, 0 to, to, to good yeah. yeah like uh zero to hero yeah
2: so what was the transition cuz now you're do a lot of cruise ships so what was your transition out of street
0: so i did one in 91 one in 95 maybe and in around 1998 i locked into an agent and a cruise line where i started doing about 3 months a year and also that's getting closer to the time where i'm just like I wouldn't mind easing up on street performing or transitioning. Uh, I've gotten out of the mentality that I have to work all the time to be good.
2: Like if you had not done a street show in so many years and you've been doing cruise ships, so you're going to change as a performer and you're going to bring that to your street show when you go back and do it again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a little interesting. Uh, A couple of years ago, three years ago or so... I was on Facebook, and I get a message from Bill Ferguson, Mm -hmm. who's like, Oh, you want to come do my street performing festival? And by that time, I had now not done a street show in like two or three years. And I was feeling really like also to go and do a show for an all-English audience. I've done shows where there were some people from England in a show, you know, whether it's street performing or theater that really liked the show, but to do a show where it's all English people, I thought, well, you know, this may not work. I thought, what the heck, I'll do it, and it ended up being really a good experience for me. I enjoyed it tremendously. I hadn't done, you know, uh, certain gags in street shows for three years or so, and so I'm dusting off certain props and doing it, and... And it all came back. Yeah, it came back. It was really like a fairly short time before I felt like I could just sort of jump into it. And one of the things I've gotten better at is just there have been times where, you know, you're doing a routine and it's like I haven't done it in long enough that I'm like, oh, crap, I can't remember (laughs) what what comes next. Or after the show, you're like, oh, I, you know, I forgot to do this bit. This is a great bit or something. But yeah,
2: yeah. So when you went to do Bill's Festival, did it make you feel like you wanted to go back and do street more, or that was enough?
0: Uh, That was enough. Uh (laughs) I actually thought, well, I would, you know, here and there, like to do that sometimes. You know, the thing is, we never really do street performing. One of the first street shows that I ever did was on Park Avenue and 51st Street during lunch hour. And it was like, you know, really much more like pure street performing. There's just, it was not an established pitch. Nobody had gone there to see me work. And I just literally, like streams of people going by during lunch hour. And I just plopped my stuff down somewhere and started doing a show. Yeah, I can't imagine you see, it.
2: I mean, how big of a crowd could you get on the sidewalk? You just want a nice little internet. Well,
0: there was a uh, stairway up to a plaza area. So there was, uh, okay. it wasn't completely nuts, yeah. but it was one of the most pure street performing things I'd ever done. Like, you know, even if you go to Jackson Square in New Orleans, people know that it's a spot and they yeah. go, They know to to go there. The difference is, in some ways, it's outdoors. You do still have to build the crowd, et etc, but there you know it's not really street performing yeah. like in the pure sense of the word.
2: yeah, when I <laughs> that just reminded me of uh when I first started street performing, and uh, I was at Washington Square Park because that's where I knew you'd go, and I was waiting, I was always waiting. it was like tick and tack, and they mm-hmm. would go on forever, and then it was a what was his name Ballooniac. he was a magician with balloons, and then uh will was there. Masterly, and uh, I, don't know, I just was getting bored of waiting, and I just wanted to try to do a show. I just wanted to practice doing a show, and I just walked down the street. It was like LaGuardia and uh, Sullivan Street or whatever, <laughs> just on the corner. I'm like, this looks wide enough. I had no fear because I'd never really worked the street. It was just like I was new to it, so it just seemed like that's it's a spot. There's people walking by.
0: You know, it intrigued me when you say I had no fear. Did you really like? You just didn't care. I didn't because I always battled fear to do it and to start and whatever. Um, but, yeah, New Orleans, you know, there were times where I'd find a street corner and work. And that really felt much more like true street performing. When you go to some, you know, Rouse Company thing like South Street Seaport, you're working at a pitch at a... Sort you know,
2: of. But people, I mean, the Seaport, it's like people don't know what's going on. People have no idea that that's a spot that people work all the time. It's Especially now, it's, it's, it's there's so much of, like, the shit you find everywhere that they're selling out there that it's, now it doesn't even feel like that's a spot you would want to watch somebody because it's all this other stuff that's in the way distracting you. So you wouldn't... People are surprised.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, one thing interesting about, I guess, street performing in general and at the seaport is how easy it is to be invisible. I always thought, like, you know, here you have a magician with a top hat And, you know, just that and the costumes and the props, people would somehow go like, huh, I wonder what this is going to be. But yet, that wasn't enough. And uh, I remember you particularly telling me that you felt I was really good at knowing how to get a crowd and build a crowd. And, you know, somehow I think I did really get quite good at that. But... There are times when I felt like, man, what do you have to do for oh. anybody to notice you at yeah. all? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's crazy. But there's lots of places like that. It's just... Like Australia, for example.
0: <laughs> all of Australia. I remember one good. time in Germany, I was on in some town in Germany, and I just felt completely invisible. Like, I have no way of getting these people to care that i'm standing there are going to do a show yeah and to me i find that frightening yeah it really takes a lot of balls to get through that and and get started yeah
2: so you don't miss it then
0: there are times a little bit i you know i the year or two after i stopped i still was having like of like oh it's like, like a nice Saturday in.
2: afternoon, oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah,
0: and and guilt about like quitting and stuff like that. yeah, I think I did enough of it that I feel sort of like, would I ever come back to it again, just you know, for whatever, I kind of think in terms of like if if I could do something completely different, come up with a character that's more like an older person doing thing, maybe not doing magic at all. But something that really was like an easier show, but something that I really felt like I took everything that I learned from street performing before and rehashed it into something completely different. That I, intrigues me to do. Another thing is to develop the kind of show that would be good, but that you could just do in a backpack yeah. and go travel around the world. Yeah. That intrigues me. I don't know that I would do either, but uh, you know, those are two things that I think I'd rather do that than try and come back and do what I've already done.
2: Right. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. <laughs> Nicely done, Jeff Moshi.
0: I'm giving myself
2: a round of applause. Applause. Hey. Hey. Is that right? Is there anything else you want to throw out there though before? Uh, you know. Send send
0: your donations to, (laughs) I have an address I can give you, well, an email, a post office box. P.O. box? Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right, signing off from Brooklyn, New York.
1: Shalom Aleichem. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. We throw a ridiculous amount of time into the production of each episode, then put them out into the world for free because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide this sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. If you like what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the Donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go into the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving us a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell, something you think we could improve, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Huff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. Now, as Stories from the Pitch is at its root a podcast about street performing stories that happen on or near the pitch, I thought I'd leave you with this quick one from Jeff's time in Europe.
0: I think it was 1991 was the first summer I spent in Europe. I was in northern Europe for most of the summer, and the last couple of weeks I was in Europe, I went down to Germany, and I come walking down the street with my gear and there's Dirty Fred, who I have no idea who he is. And as I'm walking up, he goes, Jeff Moshe. And I'm like, how the hell do you know who I am? And he goes, oh, Jewish magician. <laughs> so somehow, my legend had preceded me as a Jew magician, you know, so, uh, uh, maker of miracles. So then, you know, Fred and I hung out a fair amount during that week or two, and... Uh, We decided, I think this was my line, that uh, whenever people wouldn't know that we knew each other, we would introduce ourselves. Fred would say to me, hi, Fred Rowling, Master Race. And I'd say, Jeff Moshe, Chosen People, nice to meet you.
1: (laughs) On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Associate Producer Magic Bryan, who both captured this interview and created the preliminary edit, and the rest of the staff at the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
0: That was the best (laughs) festival I ever did.